Chapter 5 of Cardinal Wolsey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Cardinal Wolsey by Mandel Crichton. Chapter 5. The Conference of Calais, 1520-1521. The most significant point in the mediatorial policy of Wolsey was the fact that it threw the papacy entirely into the shade. What Wolsey was doing was the traditional business of the Pope, who could not openly gainsay a policy which he found to profess, coincided with his own. So Leo X followed Wolsey's lead of keeping on good terms with France and the Emperor alike. But Leo had no real wish for peace. He wished to gain something in Italy for the Medici and nothing was to be gained while France and Spain suspended hostilities. Only in time of war could he hope to carry out his own plans by balancing one combatant against the other. Charles' ambassador was not wrong in saying that Leo hated Wolsey more than any other man, and Leo tried to upset his plans by drawing nearer to the imperial side. It required very little to provoke war between Francis and Charles. Either would begin the attack if the conditions were a little more favourable, or if he could secure an ally. But Charles was weak, owing to the want of unity of interest in his unwieldy dominions. Germany was disturbed by the opinions of Luther. Spain was disturbed by a revolt of cities against long-standing misgovernment. Charles was not ready for war, nor was Francis much better provided. His coffers were empty through his lavish expenditure, and his government was not popular. Really, though, both wished for war. Neither was prepared to be the aggressor. Both wanted the advantage of seeming to fight in self-defence. It was obvious that Charles had made a high bid for the friendship of England when he offered himself as the husband of the Princess Mary. Wolsey had taken care that Francis was informed of this offer, which necessarily led to a long negotiation with the imperial court. Really, Charles's marriage projects were rather complicated. He was betrothed to Charlotte of France. He had made an offer for Mary of England, but he wished to marry Isabella of Portugal for no loftier reason than the superior attractions of her dowry. His proposal for Mary of England was prompted by nothing save the desire to have Henry as his ally against France. If he could manage by fair promises to induce Henry to go to war, his purpose would be achieved, and he could still go in quest of the Portuguese dower. So when Tunstall, the master of the rolls, went as English envoy to discuss the matter, Charles's council raised all sorts of difficulties. Let the English king join a league with the Pope and the Emperor against France, and the Pope would grant his dispensation, which was necessary owing to the relationship between Charles and Mary. Tunstall was bidden by Wolsey to refuse such conditions. England would not move until the marriage had been concluded, and would not join in any league with the Pope till his dispensation was in Henry's hand. The separate alliance of England and the Emperor must be put beyond doubt to England's satisfaction before anything else could be considered. Wolsey commissioned Tunstall to adopt a loftier tone. It would be great folly, he says, for this young prince not being more surely settled in his dominions, and so ill-provided with treasure and good counsellors, the Pope also being so brittle and variable to be led into war for the pleasure of his ministers. Truly Wolsey thought he had taken the measure of those with whom he dealt, and spoke with sufficient plainness when occasion needed. But Charles' Chancellor, Gatinara, a Piedmontese, who was rising into power, was as obstinate as Wolsey, and rejected the English proposals with equal scorn. Your master, he said to Tunstall, would have the emperor break with France, but would keep himself free. He behaves like a man with two horses, one of which he rides and leads the other by his hand. It was clear that nothing could be done, 
and Wolsey with some delight recalled Tunstall from his embassy. A closer alliance with the Emperor was an end for the present. He had shown again that England would only forego her mediating position on her own terms. At the same time, he had dealt an equal measure of rebuff to France. Before the conference at Guine, Francis had done some work towards rebuilding the ruined walls of Ardez on the French frontier. After the conference, the work was continued till England resented it as an unfriendly act. Francis was obliged to give way and ordered the building to be stopped. Neither Francis nor Charles were allowed to presume on the complacency of England, nor use their alliance with her to further their own purposes. The general aspect of affairs was so dubious that it was necessary for England to be prepared for any emergency, and first of all, Scotland must be secured as far as possible. Since the fall of James IV at Flodden Field, Scotland had been internally unquiet. Queen Margaret gave birth to a son a few months after her husband's death, and, to secure her position, took the unwise step of marrying the Earl of Angus. The enemies of Angus and the National Party in Scotland joined together to demand that the Regency should be placed in firmer hands, and they summoned from France the Duke of Albany, a son of the second son of James III, who had been born in exile and was French in all the traditions of his education. When Albany came to Scotland as regent, Queen Margaret and Angus were so assailed that Margaret had to flee to England for refuge in 1515, leaving her son in Albany's care. She stayed in England till the middle of 1517, when she was allowed to return to Scotland, on the condition that she took no part in public affairs. About the same time, Albany returned to France, somewhat weary of his Scottish charge. By his alliance with Francis, Henry contrived that Albany should not return to Scotland, but he could not contrive to keep his sister, Margaret, the political wisdom which was needed to draw England and Scotland nearer together. Margaret quarrelled with her husband, Angus, and only added another element of discord to those which previously existed. The safest way for England to keep Scotland helpless was to encourage forays on the border. The Warden of the Western Marches, Lord Dacre of Narworth, was admirably adapted to work with Wolsey for this purpose. Without breaking the formal peace which existed between the two nations, he developed a savage and systematic warfare waged in the shape of border raids which were purposely meant to devastate the Scottish frontier so as to prevent a serious invasion from the Scottish side. Still, Henry VIII was most desirous to keep Scotland separate from France, but the truth was Scotland expired in November 1520. Wolsey would have gladly have turned the truce into a perpetual peace, but Scotland still clung to its French alliance, and all that Wolsey could achieve was a prolongation of the truce till 1522. He did so, however, with the air of one who would have preferred war, and Francis I was induced to urge the Scots to sue for peace and accept as a favour what England was only too glad to grant. At the same time, an event occurred in England which showed in an unmistakable way the determination of Henry to go his own way and allow no man to question it. In April 1520, the Duke of Buckingham, one of the wealthiest of the English nobles, was imprisoned on an accusation of high treason. In May he was brought to trial before his peers and was found guilty and was executed. The charges against him were trivial if true. The witnesses were members of, of his household who bore him a grudge. But the king heard their testimony in his council and committed the duke to the tower. None of the nobles of England dared differ from their imperious master. If the king thought fit that Buckingham should die, they would not run the risk of putting any obstacle in the way of the royal will. Trials for treason under Henry VIII were mere formal acts of registration of a decision already formed. The Duke of Buckingham, no doubt, was a weak and foolish man, 
and may have done and said many foolish things. He was in some sense justified in regarding himself as the nearest heir to the English throne if Henry left no children to succeed him. Henry had been married for many years, and as yet there was no surviving child save the Princess Mary. It was unwise to talk about the succession to the crown after Henry's death. It was criminal to disturb the minds of Englishmen who only had so lately won the blessings of internal peace. If the Duke of Buckingham had really done so, he would not be undeserving of punishment. But the evidence against him was slight, and its source was suspicious. No doubt Buckingham was incautious, and made himself a mouthpiece of the discontent felt by the nobles of the French alliance, and their own exclusion from affairs. No doubt he denounced Wolsey, who sent him a message that he might say what he liked about against himself, but warned him to be aware of what he said against the king. It does not seem that Wolsey took any active part in the proceedings against the duke, but he did not do anything to save him. The matter was the king's matter, and as such it was regarded by all. The nobles, who probably agreed with Buckingham's opinions, were unanimous in pronouncing his guilt, and the Duke of Norfolk, with tears streaming down his cheeks, condemned him to his doom. The mass of the people were indifferent to his fate, and were willing that the king should be the sole judge of the precautions necessary for his safety, with which the internal peace and outward glory of England was entirely identified. Charles and Francis stood aghast at Henry's strong measures, and were surprised that he could do things in such a high-handed manner with impunity. If Henry intended to let the statesmen of Europe know he was not to be diverted from his course by fear of causing disorders at home, he thoroughly succeeded. The death of Buckingham was a warning that those who crossed the king's path and hoped to thwart his plans by petulant opposition were playing a game which would only end in their own ruin. Free from any opposition at home, Wolsey could now give his attention to his difficult task abroad. Charles V had been crowned at Arken and talked of an expedition to Rome to receive the imperial crown. Francis I was preparing for a campaign to assert the French claims on Milan. Meanwhile, he wished to hamper Charles without openly breaking the peace. He stirred up a band of discontented barons to attack Luxembourg and aided the claimants of the crown of Navarre to enter his inheritance. War now seemed inevitable, and Wolsey remained true to his principles and urged upon both kings that they should submit their differences to the mediation of England. Charles was busied with the revolt of the Spanish towns, was not unwilling to gain time. After a show of reluctance, he submitted to the English proposals, but Francis, rejoicing of the prospect of success in Luxembourg and Navarre, refused on the ground that Charles was not in earnest. Still, Francis was afraid of incurring England's hostility and quailed before Wolsey's threat that if France refused mediation, England would be driven to the side of the Emperor. In June 1521, he reluctantly assented to a conference to be held at Calais, over which Wolsey should preside, decide between the pleas urged by the representatives of the two hostile monarchs. If Wolsey triumphed at having reached his goal, his triumph was of short duration. He might display himself as a mediator seeking to establish peace, but he knew that peace was well nigh impossible. While the negotiations were in progress with the conference which was to resolve differences, events were tending to make war inevitable. When Wolsey began to broach his project, Francis was desirous of war and Charles was anxious to defer it. But Charles met with some success in obtaining promises of help from Germany in the Diet of Worms, and when that was over, he heard welcome news which reached him gradually from all sides. The revolt of the Spanish towns was dying down. The aggressors in Luxembourg had been repulsed. The troops of Spain had won signal successes in Navarre. His embarrassment was certainly disappearing on all sides. More than this, Pope Leo X, after long wavering, made up his mind to take a definite course. 
No doubt he was sorely vexed to find that the position which he hankered after was occupied by England. And if he were to step back into the politics of Europe, he could not defer a decision much longer. He had wavered between an alliance with France and Venice on one side, or with the Emperor on the other. The movement of Luther in Germany had been one of the questions for settlement in the Diet of Worms, and Luther had been silenced for a time. Leo awoke in some degree to the gravity of the situation, and saw the advantage of making common cause with Charles, whose help in Germany was needful. Accordingly, he made a secret treaty with the Emperor for mutual defence, and was anxious to draw England to the same side. The religious question was beginning to be of importance, and Francis I was regarded as a favourer of heretics, whereas Henry VIII was strictly orthodox and was busy suppressing in Lutheran opinions at home and preparing his books which should confute Luther forever. Another circumstance also greatly affected the attitude of Charles, the death of his minister, Chavez, who had been his tutor in his youth and continued to exercise great influence over his actions. Charles was cold, reserved and ill-adapted to make friends. It was natural that one whom he had trusted from his boyhood should sway his policy at the first. Chavez was a Copacundian, whose life had been spent in saving Burgundy from French aggression, and the continuance of this watchful care was his chief object till the last. His first thought was for Burgundy, and to protect that he wished for peace with France, and opposed an adventurous policy. On his death in May 1521, Charles V entered on a new course of action. He felt himself, for the first time, his own master, and took his responsibilities upon himself. He seems to have admitted to himself that the advice of Chavez had not always been wise, and he never allowed another minister to gain the influence Chavez had possessed. He contented himself with officials who might each represent some part of his dominions, and whose advice he used in turns, but none of whom could claim to direct his policy as a whole. Chief of these officials was a Savoyard, Mercurino della Gattanara, whose diplomatic skill was now of great service to the emperor. Gattanara was a man devoted to his master's interests and equal to Wolsey in resoluteness and pertinacity. Hitherto, Wolsey had had the strongest will among the statesmen of Europe and had reaped all the advantages of his strength. In Gattanara, he met with an opponent who was in many ways his match. It is true that Gattanara had not Wolsey's genius and was not capable of Wolsey's far-reaching schemes, but he had a keen eye to the interests of the moment and could neither be baffled by finesse nor overborne by menaces. His was the hand that first checked Wolsey's victorious career. So it was that, through a combination of causes, the prospects of peace suddenly darkened just as Wolsey was preparing to stand forward as the mediator of Europe. Doubtless he hoped, when he first put forward the project of a conference, that it might be the means of restoring his original design of 1518, a European peace under the guarantee of England. Since that had broken down, he had been striving to maintain England's influence by separate alliances. He hoped in the conference to use his position in the interests of peace. But first of all, the alliance with the Emperor must be made closer. The Emperor showed signs of demanding that this close alliance should be purchased by a breach with France. If war was inevitable, England had most to gain by an alliance with Charles, to whom its friendship could offer substantial advantages, as England, in case of war, could secure to Charles the means of communicating between the Netherlands and Spain, which would be cut off if France were hostile and the Channel were barred by English ships. Moreover, the prospect of a marriage between Charles and the Princess Mary was naturally gratifying to Henry, while English industry would suffer from any breach of trading relations with the Netherlands, and the notion of a war with France was still popular with the English. 
So Wolsey started for Calais at the beginning of August with the intention of strengthening England's alliance with the Emperor, that thereby England's influence might be more powerful. Charles, on the other hand, was resolved on war. He did not wish for peace by England's mediation, but he wished to draw England definitely into a league between himself and the Pope against France. Wolsey knew that much depended on his own cleverness, and nerved himself for the greatest caution, as Francis was beginning to be suspicious of the preparations of Charles, and that an attitude of affairs was not promising for Pacific mediation. This became obvious at the first interview of Wolsey with the imperial envoys, foremost among whom was Gattinara. They were commissioned to treat about the marriage of Charles with the Princess Mary, and about a secret undertaking for war against France, but their instructions contained nothing tending to peace. The French envoys were more pacific, as war was not popular in France. On the 7th of August, the conference was opened under Wolsey's presidency, but Gattinara did nothing save dwell upon the grievances of his master against France. He maintained that France had been the aggressor in breaking the existing treaty. He had no powers to negotiate for peace, or even a truce, but demanded England's help, which had been promised to the party first aggrieved. The French retorted in the same strain, but it was clear that they were not averse to peace, and were willing to trust Wolsey's mediation. Wolsey saw that he could make little out of Gattinara. He intended to visit the Emperor, who had come to Bruges for the purpose. As soon as he had settled with the Imperial envoys the preliminaries of an alliance, now he saw that the only hope of continuing the conference lay in winning from Charles better terms than the stubborn Gattinara would concede. So he begged the French envoys to remain in Calais, while he visited the Emperor and arranged with him personally for a truce. As the French were desirous of peace, they consented. On the 16th of August, Wolsey entered Bruges in royal state, with a retinue of 1,000 horsemen. Charles came to the city gate to meet him, and received him almost as an equal. Wolsey did not dismount from his horse, but received Charles's embrace seated. He was given rooms in Charles's palace, and the next day at church, Charles sat by Wolsey's side, and shared the same kneeling stool with him. Their private conferences dealt solely with the accord between England and the Emperor. Wolsey saw that it was useless to urge directly the cause of peace, and trusted to use for this purpose the advantages which his alliance would give. He succeeded, however, in considerably modifying the terms which had been first proposed. He diminished the amount of dowry which Mary was to receive on her marriage, and put off her voyage to the Emperor till she should reach the age of twelve, instead of seven, which was first demanded. Similarly, he put off the period when England should declare war against France till the spring of 1523, though he agreed that if war was being waged between Francis and Charles in November, England should send some help to Charles. Thus he still preserved England's freedom of action and deferred a rupture with France. Everyone thought that many things might happen in the next few months that England was pledged to little. Further, Wolsey guarded the pecuniary interests of Henry by insisting that if France ceased to pay its instalments for the purchase of Tournai, the Emperor should make good the loss. He also stipulated that the treaty should be kept a profound secret so that the proceedings of the conference could should still go on. Wolsey was impressed by Charles, and gave a true description of his character to Henry. For his age, he is very wise in understanding his affairs, right cold and temperate in speech, with a short manner, couching his words right well, and to good purpose when he doth speak. We do not know what was Charles's private opinion of Wolsey. He can scarcely have relished Wolsey's lofty manner, for Wolsey bore himself with all the dignity of a representative of his king. Thus, the King of Denmark, Charles's brother-in-law, was in Bruges and sought an interview with Wolsey, 
who answered that it was unbecoming for him to receive in his chamber any king to whom he was not commissioned. If the king of Denmark wished to speak to him, let him meet him, as though by accident, in the garden of the palace. When the provisions of the treaty had been drafted, Wolsey set out for Calais on the 26th of August and was honourably escorted out of Bruges by the emperor himself. On his return, the business of the conference began and was dragged on through three weary months. The imperial envoys naturally saw nothing to be gained by the conference except keeping open the quarrel with France till November, when Henry was bound to send help to the emperor if peace were not made. Wolsey remained true to his two principles, care for English interests and a desire for peace. He secured protection for the fishery of the Channel in case of war, and he cautiously strove to lead up both parties to see their advantage in making a truce, if they could not agree upon a peace. It was inevitable that these endeavours should bring on Wolsey the suspicions of both. The French guessed something of the secret treaty from the warlike appearance which England began to assume, and cried out that they were being deceived. The imperial envoys could not understand how one who had just signed a treaty with their master could throw obstacles in their way and pursue a mediating policy of his own. Really both sides were only engaged in gaining time, and their attention was more fixed upon events in the field than on any serious project of agreement. When in the middle of September the French arms won some successes, Gattinara showed himself inclined to negotiate for a truce. The conference, which had hitherto been merely illusory, suddenly became real, and Wolsey's wisdom in bargaining that England should not declare war against France till the spring of 1523 became apparent. He could urge on Gattinara that it would be wise to agree to a truce till that period was reached, and all would be straightforward. So Wolsey adjourned the public sittings of the conference and negotiated privately with two parties. The French saw in a year's truce only a means of allowing the emperor to prepare for war and demanded a substantial truce for ten years. Wolsey used all his skill to bring out an agreement and induced Catanara to accept a truce for 18 months and the French to reduce their demands to four years. But Charles raised a new difficulty and claimed that all conquests made in the war should be given up. The only conquest was Fort Anabria on the border of Navarre which was still occupied by the French. Francis would not unnaturally decline to part with it solely to bring about a brief truce, as Charles had no equivalent to restore. Wolsey used every argument to induce the emperor to withdraw his claim, but he was obstinate, and the conference came to an end. It is true that Wolsey tried to keep up appearances by concluding a truce for a month, that the emperor might go to Spain and consult his subjects about the surrender of Fort Anabria. So Wolsey departed from Calais on the 25th of November, disappointed and worn out, that he wrote himself, I have been so sore tempested in mind by the untowardness of the chancellors and orators on every side, putting so many difficulties and objects to condescend to any reasonable conditions of truce and abstinence of war, that night nor day I could have no quietness nor rest. There is no doubt that Wolsey wrote what he felt. He had laboured hard for peace and had failed. If he hoped that the labours of the conference might still be continued by his diplomacy in England, that hope was destroyed before he reached London. On the 1st of December, the imperial troops captured Tournai, which they had been for some time besieging. And the news came from Italy that Milan had fallen before the forces of the emperor and the pope. Charles had seemed to Wolsey unreasonable in his obstinacy. He had refused a truce which he had every motive of prudence for welcoming, and now events proved that he was justified. Not only had Francis been foiled in his attempts to embarrass his rival, but success had followed the first steps which Charles had taken to retaliate. The time for diplomacy was past. The quarrel must be decided by the sword. So Wolsey saw his great designs overthrown. 
He was a peace minister because he knew that England had nothing to gain from war. He had striven to keep the peace of Europe by means of England's mediation, and his efforts had been so far successful as to give England the first place in the councils of Europe. But Wolsey hoped more than diplomacy than diplomacy could do. Advice and influence can do something to check the outbreak of war when war is not very seriously designed. But in proportion as great interests are concerned, attempts at mediation are useless unless they are backed by force. England was not prepared for war and had no troops by whom she could pretend to enforce her councils. When the two rival powers began in earnest, they admitted England's mediation was only a means of involving her in their quarrel. Wolsey was only the first in a long series of English ministers who have been met with the same disappointment from the same reason. England, in Wolsey's days, had the same sort of interest in the affairs of the continent as she has had ever since. Wolsey first taught her to develop the interest in pacific councils, and so long as they had been possible, England had been powerful. But when a crisis comes, England has ever been slow to recognise its inevitableness, and a habit of hoping against hope for peace has placed her in an undignified attitude for a time drawn upon her reproaches for duplicity and has involved her in war against her will. This was now the net result of Wolsey's endeavours, a result which he clearly perceived. His efforts of mediation at Calais had been entirely his own, and he could confide to no one his regret and disappointment. Henry was resolved on war when Wolsey set forth, and if Wolsey had succeeded in making a truce, the credit would have been entirely his own. He allowed Henry to think that the conference at Calais was merely a pretext to gain time for military preparations. If a truce had been made, he would have put it down to the force of circumstances. As his efforts for a truce had failed, he could take credit that he had done all in his power to establish the king's reputation throughout Christendom, and had fixed the blame on those who would not follow his advice. It is a mark of Wolsey's conspicuous skill that he never forgot his actual position, and never was so entirely absorbed in his own plans as not to leave himself a ready means for retreat. His schemes had failed, but he could still take credit for having furthered other ends which were contrary to his own. Henry was well contented with the results of Wolsey's mission, and showed his satisfaction in the customary way of increasing Wolsey's revenues to the expense of the church. The death was announced to the abbot of St. Albans, and the king, in answer to Wolsey's request, ordered the monks to take Wolsey for their abbot, saying, My lord cardinal has sustained many charges in this his voyage, and hath expended ten thousand pounds. So, Kings were served, and so they recompensed their servants. End of chapter 5. This became obvious at the first interview of Wolsey with the Imperial envoys. Foremost, to whom, <clears throat> foremost amongst whom was Gattinara. They were commissioned to treat about the marriage of Charles with the Princess Mary and about a secret undertaking for war against France. 